Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Listen Saturday evenings. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that sentence. I'm looking forward to this hour, and I'm, I've been excited for a couple of weeks now that uh, Jay Warner Wallace is going to be joining me today. I always look forward to his wisdom and expertise, and uh, so that's going to be the hour. And I want to let you know that if you've got a question for Jim, uh, you can send a text, and I will ask on your behalf because you know the way his brain works, and he'll take on anything. 877 933 2484. Again, that number is 877-933-2484. Jim is a, you might have seen him on Dateline a long time ago um, about doing cold case homicide detective. He's a very well-known speaker throughout the world and is a best-selling author. He's a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and an adjunct professor of apologetics at Biola University and is also a faculty member at Summit Ministries. I could go on and on, but... uh, I think I'll just take a break and bring them on. Be back in 60 seconds. Grow in your faith every day through Faith Radio. We offer unique, original content through daily live and nationally recognized programs. You can find local airtimes for all your favorite shows by visiting MyFaithRadio.com and clicking on the Schedule tab. And if you ever miss a show, you can always listen to the podcast anytime. Check out your local schedule page under the Schedule tab at MyFaithRadio.com. Facing the future with confidence, because Jesus is our source. I think it just puts me at peace and calms me. Whatever's going on that day, it disappears and just relaxes. Encouragement and just hope and finding answers that you were looking for. It always seems to come out. That's what I needed that moment at that time. Daily reminders of our hope in Jesus. Faith Radio. Welcome to the show. If you're just tuning in, you're in for a big treat. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest for the whole hour, so let us know what your questions are. We'll be very happy to handle them. Jim, welcome back to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I always look forward to being with you. Thank you so much for saying that, even if you don't mean it. I do mean it. Oh, cool. (laughs) All right, we're getting to that time of year, and I know that we're all uh, getting our hearts and minds ready for the the, um, Messiah and why was the virgin birth such a big deal? What was theologically, why did that matter? Well, okay, so that's something that's uh, really, we have to be careful like with our terms, right? So yeah, you're, I mean, this is, as an atheist, I would have said that um, I was really hesitant to, to look, I was opposed to anything supernatural mm-hmm. anyway. So the idea, just another part of this fantasy that I thought early Christians must have had, you know, I would have argued that, well, if, if Mark's gospel is amongst the earliest, but perhaps even the earliest gospel, and there's nothing about the version, uh, the, you know, the, the birth narrative in Mark's gospel, there's nothing about the birth narrative in John's gospel. Uh, so I, I just wanted to, I, for me, I'm wondering, why does it really matter? 
as this is as an, an atheist now, mm-hmm. and, and not only that, just the, the miraculous nature of it anyway seemed like it was a deal killer for me. <laughs> yeah. Now, now I, I, but again, a lot, we've talked about this in the past, you and I, about why we have these presuppositions related to to anything supernatural anyway. Uh, but so for me, I just needed to, to really dig into the version conception and, and actually talk about the term a little bit. Like, why do we even use this term? And and so it, it, and, and, and historically, we've seen some version of the term pop up, right? Are you talking about a virgin conception? We've heard the term virgin birth. We've heard the term immaculate conception. What mm-hmm. are we talking about here? Well, Virgin conception, I think, is the one that probably fits best when we talk about it from a Christian perspective. It's the idea, right, that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus. In other words, that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit through Mary, but not with an act of sexual intercourse. Mm -hmm. So it's a miraculous event. It requires no natural father, no male seed, quote-unquote. Right. Uh, So that's the, the notion that we would say is best described by the scriptures that do describe the birth of Jesus. Now, there's another term I hear used all the time, mostly by Roman Catholics. Some Eastern Orthodox will also use this, and that is the the idea that, that the virgin birth, that Mary was a virgin when she conceived Jesus, and that then she remains a virgin throughout her life, mm-hmm. like the perpetual virginity of Mary. I don't think that that is necessarily um, uh, uh, best accounted for in Scripture. I don't think the Scripture makes a case as strong for that. I think it's much, you know, the idea that Jesus is born as conceived through the Holy Spirit through Mary, that is that is well, I think, documented in Scripture. But the idea that she remains a virgin throughout, I don't think is well documented and can be a case can be made for that. There's a third uh, term we hear used all the time, which is the immaculate conception, right? Just that, that somehow Mary also was conceived um, in, a, in a supernatural way, right? Um that she came into existence without even herself being uh, stained with the, by, by original sin. And that's a very Roman Catholic view, and I don't know that we can make a case for that from, from Scripture either. So that's why I the first thing I usually talk about with people is, well, what are you really talking about here, virgin birth? I'm talking about the virgin conception. And why is that important? Mm-hmm. Well, it's because Jesus is divine in his nature from start to finish, an eternal being who created everything we see in John 1, we hear about that, and who also comes into the world in a way that's not like the rest of us, uh, conceived by the Holy Spirit. You know, think about this for a second. Uh, Mormon view of Jesus is different, right? That, that Jesus is a human who, through his own good works, was exalted to godhood through his good works. So that means that, if you think about it, the nature of Jesus, the innate nature of Jesus under a Mormon view is that he is innately human but attained godhood, whereas our view is that, no, no, uh, we have a higher view of Jesus in that we believe that Jesus is innately divine and therefore does not come into the world the way that other innately humans do. So and, and this, I think, uh, is what we would call the high Christology, the high view of who Jesus is. You know, he's not just another man who somehow was either brilliant enough, worked hard enough, or was blessed by God in some way that he is then elevated. No, he is God by nature from all eternity. Now, Jim, as a former atheist, uh, was were miracles one of the fastest ways for you to write off Christianity? Oh, oh yeah, oh, absolutely. Um, I, I think that that's, you know, I was talking with my wife about this yesterday. Um, 
you know, a lot of it is that, that we don't I, – I just don't believe in anything supernatural that couldn't be explained. Look, we, we are in a culture right now that elevates um, the value of how we determine truth through some scientific process, right? So like, if, if a lot of young people would say, well, if I can't demonstrate it with science, I'm not sure I could actually embrace it as a truth claim. So I, I have to see – you know, it has to be confirmed with science in some way. And I think that's a, a really since the Enlightenment, that's been a growing sentiment. And it definitely in an internet, in a, a technolo- technological age, an information age that we live in, that a lot of young people will say they no longer identify as Christians simply because they don't think they can reconcile uh, science and a much more empirical view of how to, to, to learn something or to know something is true with their uh, Christian worldview, that these two are, are mutually exclusive. And of course, I think it's the opposite view. But as an atheist, I would have said, yeah, that's that's the thing that is the deal killer for me. If as soon as I see a miracle is being uh, cited as an explanation or a cause, then I know this person is either writing in a very specific fictional genre or is just flat crazy and believes something that's not true. Mm-hmm. And it, it was a bias, an innate bias. That, but here's what I, I often ask people to remember, that, that every one of us believes in something – and, and, and something miraculous. If, if, if what we mean by, by miraculous is that the things that nature provides us cannot be cited as an explanation. Remember, all of the natural realm is space, time, and matter. There are physics and chemistry that act on space, time, and matter. But once you step out of space, time, and matter, you know, once you're outside those three things, you are now outside of what naturalism would say is a sufficient cause. You're into something extra natural mm-hmm. outside of space, time, and matter. And, and I think most of us who think hard about the beginning of the universe, even as an atheist, I was committed to something, a first cause of the universe that was outside space, time, and matter. So I was kind of walking as a contradiction to myself. Like, I'm going to reject anything extra natural, yet I embrace as the explanation for why we're here something outside of space, time, and matter. So, mm-hmm. I mean – if that, if that, what if that thing outside of space, time, and matter was actually a personal being rather than a uh, a law or a an impersonal force? What if that thing that causes everything to leap into existence is God? I mean, why why wouldn't you uh, at least be open then to other um, explanations outside of space, time, and matter, especially when they, by comparison, seem like such a small thing? I mean, the the, the, the Virgin Conception. Uh, really, if there is a God, if there is a being, if there is a cause outside of space, time, and matter that can make everything in the universe come into existence from nothing, why would you like flinch at things like the virgin conception? Right. <laughs> right? Exactly. I mean, why yeah. would that be like a big deal? Yeah. I mean, okay. Well, I, look, I can, <laughs> I can I can stop the laws of nature. Right. Uh-huh. In other words, I can drop my iPhone toward the desk. And I, gravity can draw it all the way to the desk. It should draw it all the way to the floor where it can break. Or I can intervene by sticking my hand out and dropping and, and catching the iPhone. I, as a mere human, can intervene the, and, and actually stop, prevent the laws of physics from doing what they might otherwise do. Why would I have such a hard time believing that the author of physics could do the same thing? And I think that's what, I, at least for me, began to open my 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 thinking to um, that I didn't have to say, well, okay, if I'm going to read the Gospels in this way. I'm just going to turn my brain off and, and and kind of, you know, approach it 
from a believer side. Well, no, no, I can still approach this from an unbelieving side, but I'm just going to resist the impulse to reject anything extra natural. I like your thinking, Jim. Really going to be um, uh, fun to come back after the break with questions. If you've got questions for Jim Wallace, let us know. 877-933-2484. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Jim Wallace is my guest. Let us know what question you might have for him, 877-93-FAITH. Jim, I just uh, also had Carl Kirby on the show today. He said to say oh, hi. Good. Yeah, he's, he's awesome, isn't he? I tell you. Oh, he's just got guy. so much energy. Yeah, that's really, yeah, really, yeah, definitely. really nice. All right, if you were going to explain the parable of the sower, uh, what soils would you say are uh, believers? Mm, boy, um, Really great question. Um, well, but, but, but believers in general, I mean, but look, this is one thing. I'll, I'll put it to you a different way. Um, I, I write a lot on our website about the shrinking nature of Christianity, right? That mm-hmm. Christianity appears to be statistically, even in the most last, like last two weeks, Pew reports have come out that really show a sharp decline in those who would self-identify as Christians. Okay, I get it. Um, but what do we really mean by that? I've got friends who would argue that the church is not shrinking, that the church is – and I think how this is argued is is really answers your question about the parable of the sower. Like what what is it that really defines us? How can we – when we say we are Christ followers, what does that even mean? Uh, we say we are Christians. What does that mean? So if you look at – let's say you uh, look at your table, your dining room table right now, and you throw a tablecloth over 60% of your table, say, say about 60% of the table. The table represents everyone in America. The tablecloth now represents the number of people who would identify as Christians, about 60% coverage of the table, right? But it turns out when you ask them, are you a Christian, and they say yes, we have to ask the question, what does that even mean? What do they mean when they say I'm a Christian? And if you ask them, well, can you define what it is to be a Christian? What what are the tenets of Christianity? What are the core beliefs of Christianity? To be honest with you, uh, the the whole tablecloth cannot tell you. And we've done a lot of research on this through Barna, through Gallup. A lot of studies have been done on this that sadly – most Christians cannot answer the critical questions that would define what Christianity is. It turns out that if you put a pot from your stove on the tablecloth, which, you know, a small pot, that, that really the people in the pot are the ones who actually would say they're Christians, but can accurately describe what Christianity is, okay? So it turns out here's your three things, and you have the table, you have the tablecloth, which is about 60% coverage, and then you have a pot sitting on the tablecloth. Well, we know from statistics that the tablecloth is shrinking. The people who identify as Christians is getting smaller and smaller, and, and, and they're jumping out onto the table from the tablecloth, but, but they're not saying that they are atheists. The number of atheists is not growing significantly from a statistical perspective. What is growing is a group that we are labeling as the nuns, people who say they have no religious affiliation. They, they would say, what affiliation do you have? None. So they're called the rise of the nuns. Okay, N-O-N-E-S. So, so that group is growing. 
on the table. But it's not like there's a there's, there's still only a, a teacup on the table itself. There are people who are self-proclaimed atheists and agnostics. That teacup is not growing much. But here's what's also interesting. It turns out the pot that's sitting on the tablecloth mm-hmm. of people who actually know what Christianity is, it's not really shrinking. There might even be some good reason to believe that that pot is stable or slowly growing. So yes, if what you mean by Christians are just people who identify with the word, that number is shrinking. But if what you mean are Christians who are actually Bible, I mean Bible reading, church attending, people who understand what the Bible teaches about being a Christian, that group is pretty stable. So what we're seeing is the kind of the shrinking of cultural Christianity of people who, you know, like the soils, if, if times are tough or they, they, they fall away, um, that, that is the case. But that's always been the case. By the way, that's why, for example, Jesus is able to use that parable 2,000 years ago, and it makes sense. Right? So it's not as though what we're seeing in America today is any different than it was in the days of Jesus. It's the same. But just the question is, for all of us, where are we? If I asked you... Are you on the table? Are you on the tablecloth? <laughs> or are you in the pot? Mm-hmm. Let's be honest. I mean, we're, I, mean there, I know people, and I might on certain days be one of them, who can tell you a lot more about um, the, the four teams that they believe are going to be in the college football championship, the playoffs, right, than they can about um, what Paul teaches in the Book of Romans. And that's just a matter of our perspective and what it is we choose to 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 listen to and to have on in the background and listen to in the car radio and all the stuff that we do. It's all that discretionary time that we have. How we choose it, I think, is a good indicator of what we love. And it probably can tell you whether you're on the tablecloth or in the pot. Mm-hmm. I like that. Uh, Jim, here's a, a listener. Uh, Madison said, there are times where we can't explain what we believe. For example, we don't know how the virgin birth happened, but it happened. We don't know how God made the world, but we know that he did, yet it makes complete sense. How do we explain that as a Christian? There are times where I I just trust God by faith, and I know it's the only way to live, but I can't explain why. Do you have any good ways of explaining that? Well, okay, so there's a big difference between saying, well, I have no good explanations, and I may have some aspect of of, uh, the claims of Christianity that I I struggle with. So, so for example, what I mean is uh, I don't believe in Christianity based on, on faith alone. I mean, blind faith. It's the if it comes down to what's your definition of faith. Mm-hmm. This is why I wrote a book called Forensic Faith because I believe that the biblical definition of faith is very different than what we now believe about faith in the 21st century. This idea that there's like knowledge, and then there's faith, as if faith is really not knowing in any way with any kind of certainty, but you just believe it anyway. So there's three ways I talk about faith, right? Unreasonable beliefs that are really, uh, people believe them in spite of evidence to the contrary. That's not what we're being asked for here. There are blind beliefs that people believe even though they have no evidence at all. That is not what Jesus did. If that was the case, that every time he walked into a city and performed a miracle first before he started talking, which was every time, why would he do that? Because as, Paul, as Peter says in Acts uh, 1, in the Pentecost sermon, those are, uh, they attest, the miracles that were evidence that attested to the divinity of Jesus, so you would know that he is speaking from authority. So he does those first. So they attest to who he is. Now, that's very powerful. That's a different kind of faith. It means that, yes, I have unanswered questions, but I've got lots of evidence that lead me down a, 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 in a certain direction. 
and it only goes so far because in every case, whether you're in a criminal trial or otherwise, the evidence will only bring you so far. I cannot answer every question that some juror has, and we make sure we don't impanel jurors that have to have every question answered because we're not going to be able to do that. And there are times when I have more than enough evidence to demonstrate that my suspect did this crime, even though I can't tell you exactly how he did it. But there's more than enough evidence to attest to the fact that he did it. So I would say, yep, although I I don't have any good evidence to tell me how he did something, I am trusting the evidence to tell me that he did something. So I'm not completely blind or not using evidence at all. I am using evidence even though I have certain open questions. Look, I have open questions. I I sometimes – I have brothers and sisters in the the faith who are widely divided over how to interpret Genesis 1. And I get these – I see these arguments all the time. And by the way, I post uh, um, information on all aspects of the spectrum. And, and people who are on a different aspect that day will either defriend me or complain about why I'm representing the other side. Why? Because I don't believe this is a Christian essential. I know that there's more than enough evidence to demonstrate that God created the universe from nothing. How long did that take exactly? How exactly did he do that? I, I don't, okay, we can disagree about that. And you may not know. You may not be able to answer the how did he do it question. But I know that he did it because the evidence is very good for that. And I'm just not going to divide over the how did he do it question. This is why, for example, if I don't know exactly how a suspect committed a crime in front of a jury, I'm not going to talk about that. I'm going to stay on, and if they ask me, well, how do you think he did it? I don't know how he did it. I've had several of those. You know, like the guy who kills his wife, I don't know how he killed her. He got rid of the body. I didn't even have a body when I went to trial. So on these no-body missings, I can't answer how did he do it, when did he do it, where did he do it, how did he get rid of her body. I can't answer those questions. But I still have more than enough reason to demonstrate, more than enough evidence to demonstrate that he did it. And I ask jurors to make a decision based on that. Yeah, and if the baseball bat is bleached and it's a yellow Carmen Ghia, I think you got your guy. That's true. That's, that's in our first book, yeah. And as a matter of fact, I've used those examples in the first book so, so much that my wife, whenever we see a yellow or any kind of Carmen Ghia, she'll say, there you go, there's our suspect. So, yeah, I shouldn't have used those examples. Oh, it's fantastic, though. That that illustration is so brilliantly laid out um, that I just, I love that. I've, I've, I just think it's wonderful. So thank you for sharing that the way you did. Well, um, I'm happy to do it. Yeah. Uh, now we're kind of up against a hard break here, so we've only got about 90 seconds. But a question came in, uh, Terry, who said, um, this is connected to Christ's divine conception. Isn't a lot of the miracles of Jesus' life, specifically his birth and death resurrection, originate from other classical mythologies like the Greek, India, and China cultures? How, as a Christian, do I refute this? Yeah, I, I, I actually, would you want to answer that now or on the other side of the break? That's, um, a, that's a great question. Oh, good. Um, we've got... Uh, yeah, we've got a minute, so maybe we'll okay, just do I'll, that. Okay, let's in... get started. Uh, I, I do think, and I've been writing another book right now, uh, which argues that you can make a case for Christianity and for the, for the existence of, of Jesus, the divinity of Jesus, even if you had no New Testament manuscripts, you could still make a case. And I'll talk about that in about a year when I have the book finished. But but what I have been studying are all of the pre-existing mythologies that precede Jesus. And it turns out there's not just one similarity. There's like, I think, 15 that I have identified that are similar between all of the gods that precede Jesus and then Jesus of Nazareth. But interestingly, none of those gods have all 15 until we get to Jesus. Okay. 
Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. We're going to take a little break. Let the questions keep rolling in, 877-933-2484. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Faith Radio. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Go to coldcasechristianity.com. Again, coldcasechristianity.com. He's got so many resources, so much to learn. You will spend hours and hours and hours like I have at his website, and you will love it. All right, uh, let's go back to uh, Terry's question. If we want to elaborate on that some more, talking about uh, the uh, Christ divine conception, and of course there are um, miracles of Jesus, his birth, death, resurrection originate from classical mythologies, Greek, India, and China cultures. And so how do we as Christians refute this? Yeah, I don't think you need to refute it at all. I mean, it's very, very true uh, that there are many similarities between uh, mythologies of antiquity and Jesus who appears in the first century. And what these are, uh, are quite frankly, um, by the way, you'll hear all kinds of people argue that, oh, yeah, there's all these exact duplicate um, images of Jesus prior to Jesus. I mean, some of the exact things that Jesus said or did are represented in ancient mythologies. That's actually not true. I've read all of them. So all of the the similarities are extremely general. So when we say a virgin conception, what we really mean is that uh, more broadly, uh, the God who is being worshipped prior to Jesus comes into the world in a way that is not natural. It may not be a virgin conception. He might just appear. Mithras, for example, pops out of the side of a mountain, okay? So when they say, well, Mithras came in the the virgin conception, well, wait a minute. He popped in. Okay, he did come into the world supernaturally, but to say he was, you know, conceived in the way that Jesus was conceived of a woman, that that doesn't – or sometimes they'll say, well, this god had sex with a woman, and that's how this – this king who becomes uh, the god of the next generation came into being. So, so what I typically say is, hey, well, that's not really like the Jesus story, but let's, I will grant you this, that there are a number of pre-existing mythologies in which the god being worshipped came into existence in a uh, supernatural way. Okay, well, think about that. If, you, if the thing you're worshipping and calling god I would expect that most people who think about God would think that he's supernatural and so he can defeat the laws of nature. And some probably would, you would probably also infer that he would come into the world in a – like why wouldn't that be a common expectation for anyone who's thinking hard about God? Of course they would. If you say, for example, well, a lot of the gods that preceded Jesus, they could work miracles too. Oh, well, yeah, if you're thinking that your God has any power at all, you're probably thinking your your God can work miracles. I mean, that's like another common expectation. If you're thinking hard about God, you would assign that attribute to the thing you're thinking about. And it turns out that all 15 of these similarities that I, I'm studying, they are all just like that. The kinds of things that if you were just thinking hard about a supernatural creator of everything, you would probably consider this thing to be part of his nature. And it's not like Jesus, but it has some similarity broadly to Jesus. Why is this happening? Well, it's happening because uh, we know that there's an expectation in the heart of every human being created in the image of God that they're going to think about God. And when they think about God, they're going to assign to their thoughts 
certain common uh, characteristics. And Paul recognizes this on Mars Hill. When he gets there and he sees all of these temples to all these different gods, and he says, man, you folks are highly religious. You've got all kinds of temples up here. You've even got a temple to an unknown god. Well, I'm here to tell you in truth about the god you have been mistakenly assigning attributes to. Like, I get it. You're thinking about God in all these ways, and in some ways you're right, and lots of ways you're wrong. I now know who this God is because I saw him with my own eyes. Let me tell you about him. So this is a very – it's not that the ancients didn't know this. It's that, in fact, what you have are these expectations of God that are met perfectly in the actual God who comes. And why you have these expectations is because you are designed in the image of God. And by the way, if you want to influence people, you have to know what their expectations are so that you can then meet their expectations. So they'll go, whoa, 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 there's, there he is, <laughs> the, the one that everyone's been talking about. Yeah. There he is. Well, you're going to make sure you meet the expectations of those who are expecting and it turns out that, that Jesus does that in the most robust way, because in every picture of God that comes before Jesus, it's just a piece of the puzzle. But when Jesus comes, he's every piece of the puzzle. Mm-hmm. So here's a listener that is so uh, honest and probably represents a lot of people. She says, when it feels like something doesn't click in my brain regarding faith, it stresses me out. I always think that as a Christian, I should have perfect faith and understand what I say I believe, if you have ever experienced severe doubts or interacted with somebody who has them, how do you overcome them and trust that Christ is greater than our doubts? And then she also says, I love how straightforward Jay Warner Wallace is. Thank you. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah, I think, I, Paul, part of it uh, for me is the word doubts, right? So this is a word that is actually um, a word that we have in uh, in Scripture. We actually have this word in Scripture. Uh, we have this word also, because remember, um, um, John the Baptist had doubts. And he sent uh, his doubt. Uh, he, he wanted to know if, if Jesus was the one. And, he, and this is after being the cousin of Jesus, right? <laughs> right? Yes, Seeing yes. Jesus baptized, right? baptizing himself, leaping in the womb when, they, when their mother's first, but all of this, and yet still he wants to know, are you the one? Okay, my point is that term doubt also, though, is in uh, uh, trials, jury trials. Uh, we have a standard of proof, and it's not beyond any doubt. It's not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. And so what that means is, yeah, I have possible doubts. We also call these in legal terms imaginary doubts. There's a jury instruction that says that, um, that the standard is too high. You, you, you will always have – judges tell jurors that you will always have a possible – the judge says actually in California that I could level a possible or imaginary doubt against anything you believe. That's true. There, there are always going to be possible and imaginary doubts. So how is it that you are able to act – by the way – there are possible doubts I could level against anything that, that any of your listeners believe today about their marriage, about what their kids are doing right now. Uh, but we don't live always kind of conflicted and wringing our hands over what is possible. Instead, we determine what we think is reasonable, and then we live according to that. And it's possible you could die on the road tomorrow and driving to work. That's not going to keep you from driving. By all the way, a lot of people die on the way to work. In Southern California here, these are the most dangerous probably, and it's raining here today. So, so there's a good chance that someone's going to lose their life on the way home on one of these freeways. 
uh, it's possible it's you. That's not going to keep you from driving mm-hmm. because we know that standard is too high. That standard, if we don't apply that standard, and we don't even apply that standard to the most heinous crimes that we try in front of a jury. It's not beyond a possible doubt. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. And what that means is, is that if you can imagine, and you keep are the kind of person who keeps on throwing questions, yeah, but what if? What about this? The what if that? Okay, you're now in that range of possible doubt. And, and it's interesting to me that you're probably not doing that about other aspects of your life. If you just bought a car or you've got a car, you're probably not doing that every day. Where well, well, what if you're not fretting over the next game coming up? You know that you're watching an NBA. You're not applying that kind of thinking to any other aspect. Because if you did, it would paralyze you. You would be frozen in place, afraid to make a step because of what might possibly happen. So I would just suggest that look, I get it. You're going to have doubts. I'm comfortable with my doubts because I know they're all in the possible or imaginary category. They're not in the reasonable category. There's more than a good enough evidence to demonstrate that Christianity is true, but that is not going to eliminate every possible doubt, and nor should it. Because I'm not asking you to get beyond that standard. The standard is actually much lower. And I think there's more. I don't think anyone. I mean, look, there are going to be the anti-theists that are out there, who are going to say that this, there's not even a shred of evidence. There's not a, a single way. Okay, that's such an overstatement. Look, I, I will agree. I cannot eliminate every possible doubt, but I can definitely get beyond a reasonable doubt. Mm-hmm. Jim, that's such a great distinction. I know that's going to be a big help to a lot of listeners when you just talk about the imaginary doubts and the possible doubts and then the reasonable doubt. I think that's just so beautifully laid out. Well, I just hope that it gives people a little more confidence, right? Because I think what we've done is we've 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 uh, raised the bar here. I, I mean, look, there's an old Pascal's wager, right? Like, what what is the risk here? Um, if you have some possible doubts, what is the risk that you take by, by, by inferring most reasonably from the evidence, even though you have some unanswered questions? You know, I think it's far riskier to go in the opposite direction than it is to go this. So I think not only is it, reason, is it evidentially reasonable, I think it's also the, 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 most, the lowest risk based on reason as well. Mm-hmm. Getting back to the uh, virgin birth question, another listener said um, sin is passed through Adam, so that's the virgin birth was needed. Um, of course, the wages of sin is death. There's, um, so that's why Jesus needed to be uh, born without, uh, without the conception, without... Well, there, there's this mis- there's this ancient mis- theological mystery that we wrestle with, right? Is is God is Jesus? We say that Jesus is not fit half God and half human. Mm-hmm. He's a hundred percent God and a hundred percent human. And although I know that sounds like, well, how can that possibly be? But this is the, the, one of the mysteries of the faith that we think is an essential. This idea that God, that Jesus is divine, but that He as a human. Under, he's from our kind. He understands us. He, he's, he's experienced what we have experienced, but he's not like us in the sense that he has the ability as God to live without sin. So it's not as though he doesn't know us. He doesn't sit afar, separated from us, because he is 100% human. But at the same time, he, he can die for us on the cross, and it's not God saying, I'm going to kill one of you to save the rest of you. It's that God is saying, I will pay the price for what you actually have earned, because Jesus is not just a – he's divine. So that's, the, I think, part of the necessity 
uh, of of the well, I don't. When I say necessity, here's my fear. My fear is that the argument, the counter argument, can be well, yeah. Once you figured that out theologically, you added the virgin conception to your to your playbook, and that's not what I think happened at all. I think, as a matter of fact, that the virgin conception would have been so. I actually make a case for on our website of why I think the virgin conception is reasonable. And why I do not think it is borrowed from other mythologies, that it is somehow a, a, an invention that is supposed to somehow uh, aid in, in proselytizing the lost. I think there are good reasons to believe that this is just what it's true, and so therefore it's communicated by the gospel authors. All right, let me uh, take a little break. Uh, Jim Wallace is my guest, and if you have questions, keep them coming in, 877-933-2484. We'll be back in 90 seconds. Welcome back to the show. Jay Warner Wallace is my guest. Head over to coldcasechristianity.com. You will enjoy that website as I've spent hours and hours there. And there's so many great uh, videos and podcasts and articles. And Jim is a brilliant thinker and you will uh, enjoy it a great deal. So Jim, let's talk a little bit between uh, about facts and faith. Uh, the difference when you're just kind of hunting for facts and you go, okay, this makes sense. How do I go to placing my faith in those facts? Yeah, great, great, um, great question. I think that so from kind of a criminal perspective of how we look at this, the facts are basically the evidences that we present to the jury, and we can establish these uh, factually. So, but even if we did that, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to arrive at the same inference, the Mm -hmm. same conclusion. And we would argue, and most of the time in my cases, we'll spend weeks and weeks presenting uh, evidences, and the defense doesn't really, many times, will not even present a single piece of new evidence. They're just going to argue by by, by, uh, careful cross-examination along the way, and then finally in their closing argument, they're going to argue that, yes, we uh, we agree on all this evidence. It's all this evidence is out there, but we disagree about what to infer from that evidence. We actually think we can make a case for something different, for the opposite view, for a view that says our client is uh, is not guilty. So I, I think that's something that we, we see a lot, where we have the same body of facts, yet both sides are asked, and I do this all the time, right? For example, I wrote this book, God's Crime Scene. What am I using as the facts to demonstrate the existence of God in the universe? Well, I'm using all the same facts that evolutionists, for example, will use to demonstrate that they think evolution is true. Uh, you know, in other words, I, we're not disagreeing about the facts. We all agree that we, you know, these are. This is the nature of biology. This is the nature of the universe around us. Now the question is, what conclusions should we draw from these facts? And, and I wish it was just a matter of teaching people uh, how to evaluate evidence, right? Well, I'm going to teach you five rules for evidence, and therefore we're all going to come to the same conclusion. That's not how it works, unfortunately. It turns out that, that when you are making an inference from evidence, sadly, most of the time, you're making it with all kinds of other factors weighing into the decision-making process, what you like, what you don't like, your personal histories, your preferences, your tastes. These are things that are part of your decision-making process, what you consider to be innately repulsive or innately beautiful. These are things that you consider uh, as, you know, what is your lifelong position on this, Ben? Um, you know, for example, most people who write books uh, stating one view are probably not at some point going to write a book after they've made millions of dollars arguing for the opposite direction. They may just quietly go off into the ether rather than write a book that says I was wrong about all that stuff. <laughs> so a lot of the stuff that we infer from evidence 
is based on something other than the evidence itself. It's based on other things that drive us to make decisions. I wish I could say that all of those were just uh, facts. They aren't always. So I think what we can do, to be honest with each other, is just ask yourself, you know, what is driving my decision-making? Is it um, purely the evidence? Uh, that I, This is why we ask jurors. Okay, you may possess opinions and even some biases, but are you going to be able to set those aside to look at the evidence fairly? Right? We ask that question. You probably, If you've been involved in a jury trial, you've probably been asked that question. Well, why do we need to ask that question? Well, because we know that people are going to struggle with uh, something other than the evidence right? when they, when they actually are evaluating the evidence. Jim, in uh, 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 13, uh, in verse 5, it says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you failed the test. Can you frame that a little bit better for us? Well, okay, so that so I, I know a lot of us who are who are apologists would like to to frame that purely in terms of its its um, you know its its value in terms of what's the test going to be? Is it going to be a test of your knowledge, your theological knowledge? <laughs> uh, is it a test of what you know whatever that may be? So you're in First Corinthians. I want to just hop in there with you real quick. Yeah. By the way, 13. thanks Bill, for telling me you're going to go there before we start. Okay. Oh, well, you bet. Yeah, I was uh, always love to give you a help. heads up. Of course, of course. So, so, what, so you're. I mean, I'm there, there with you now, also in First Corinthians 13. What verse did you start in? Uh, chapter um, 13, verse five. Test yourself okay, to see five. if you okay, are in the perfect, faith. Perfect. Yeah. Great, great, great. So he's talking about this in the context of of of, of speaking in tongues in verse one, right? And if you're going to speak in tongues, the tongues of men and angels, but you have not love, then you're just a noisy, clanging symbol. He mm-hmm. says. And if you have prophetic powers, but you're not uh, acting in love, well, then all that's test for knowledge uh, for nothing. And so, if, so he's basically arguing here is for the value of love as a priority in the life of the Christian. So it seems to me that it's reasonable in that context to be able to say, okay, well, look, ask yourself this question. What is your motive really when you're speaking in tongues? Or what is your motive really when you are puffing up and saying, I have a prophecy for you? Or what is your motive really when you're standing up before an audience because you have something you want to proclaim? Is your motive really that you – it's the love that you have for these folks that drives you, this selfless kind of love? Or is it your love of self? And to be at the center of things, that's, I think, part of what the test is in the context of this verse. But by the way, that's a good test for you and I mm-hmm. when we talk about our desire to, um, to make a case for Christianity. You know, I, I have to be careful that, that what, what's driving me is not just that I think I'm right and I want to win an argument because I think I'm right. That, that really, this is not that what this is about. This is – the claims of Christianity are not just propositional claims to win arguments. But it's the cure for what is killing us spiritually, that without the salvation of Jesus, we have a one destiny, which you don't want anyone you love to be in that destiny. So why are we doing this? Well, because we're hoping that this is going uh, – and this is why we it, – it, 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 if it doesn't include the presentation of the gospel of what it is God is offering us – now, I get it. There's days when all I'm doing is just knocking down walls that mm-hmm. people have constructed so that someday they'll listen to the gospel. But what ought to be driving us is the, the love for others that says, I don't want you to suffer eternity without, outside the presence of God. And so I'm going to offer you a way to be in God's presence. 
Um, and, and that's what ought to be driving us. But I think sometimes what happens is we're in a Twitter world. We're all a hammer looking for a nail. Uh, we're, we've got extreme positions. We're polarized right now in the country. And at times it doesn't feel like we're acting out of love for each other. It kind of feels like we're acting out of, you know, platforming. You know, we want to be right on, on social media. We want to maintain a certain position on social media. That, that can't be what drives us. Mm-hmm. Jim, what about when uh, a new believer uh, starts to examine Scripture and starts to cherry-pick some of the things that he likes and some of the things he doesn't like, and he comes to the decision that hell's just not really a very good idea, and I've got family members that may not be going to heaven, so therefore I, it's a little bit more convenient for me just to say, no, there's not going to be this eternal damnation. But yet they claim to have come into a new relationship with Christ. Then what? Isn't it funny how sometimes it's so easy to to, to uh, infer that there is an eternal reward, but not that there is a, <laughs> an eternal punishment, right? right? Like, you know, the, the, the same people who might deny that there's a hell waiting for those who, who reject uh, would actually affirm. They would say, well, but there is a heaven, though, and I'm going to be in the heaven. The reality, of course, is that you, this is like the, the, this, this, this balance between justice and mercy is the I think the most critical aspect of the nature of God that's hard for us to replicate as humans. But we do know that you cannot have one without the other. So mercy without justice is just an empty word, because if no one is punished for wrongdoing, if there's no consequence for wrongdoing, then you're basically saying that wrongdoing isn't wrong. It's the same as right doing. It's all the same. It's nothing's gift. So in order to reward right doing, or in order to reward anything good, or in this case, in order to even reward a free gift that's offered, you'd have to say there's a consequence for not taking the gift. If there's no consequence, then there's no reward. So I think that these two have to be held in balance. Don't take, though, a cultural view of hell, which is not necessarily a biblical view of hell. So I would say first, understand what the Bible teaches about hell. You know, this idea of this the kind of language that is used to describe hell. How are we to take that language? We need to know one thing for sure, that there will be different levels of punishment in hell. That's a good inference from evidence mm-hmm. of Scripture. So this idea that everyone gets ju- thrown into the same fiery pit as Hitler or uh, Jeffrey Dahmer, whoever it is you think is the worst person needs to be punished, is probably not true. But there will be some people who probably are the only thing they will suffer is et- a- an eternity of regret, which is enough to not want for your loved ones. Um, so I think that there's good reason to, to want to act out of love to save them from that result. But by the way, uh, it, then if there is no – remember, if there is no eternal negative consequence, it cannot be accurately said that there is an eternal positive consequence. That's, that's very well stated. So we're encouraging all our Faith Radio listeners throughout the month of December to read a chapter a day in Luke and just to sort of correspond with the day of the, of the month and then read that chapter. So we're in Luke 6 right. today. And when Jesus talks about uh, judging, do not judge and you will not be judged, that, that verse often gets used um, um, out of context, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it, it does, as if, as if to say that no judgment can be made, which would, really wouldn't make sense given that Jesus often makes judgments about the people around him. And, and wants us, apparently, to as well, because you'll say things like, you know, uh, to, to beware uh, things that are evil. Well, how would you do that if I can't judge something to be evil? I mean, I, so what it comes down to is, is to remember what kind of judgment is in view. Um, this idea that judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned, forgive and you will uh, be forgiven. 
it's really what kind of judgment are we talking about here? Uh, we are not to judge hypocritically, right? This idea that you have this big log in your eye and you're getting all upset and uh, uptight about someone's little splinter in their eye. Well, well, really. Uh, so, so how about this? How about if you remove that log from your eye before you start talking about somebody else's splinter? So this really comes down to the nature of, of, of hypocritical judgment, right? But, but we all have to make judgments, and the entire Gospels are full of calls for us to make decisions between good and evil, to choose this over that. Well, how could you do that if you did, were not even allowed to judge the rightness? Now, here's the difference. I, I can hate, and we are commanded to hate, that's a judgment, mm-hmm. bad ideas, because God hates sin. And we're called to hate sin as well. Well, really? Hate's kind of a strong word. No, we're called to hate sin. What we are not called to do is to hate the people who hold bad ideas. Tolerance, by its very definition, is to hate the bad idea, but not hate the person who holds the bad idea, but instead to love that person and to try to guide them away from the bad idea. That is true tolerance. You've got a lot of people in your life. The holidays will reveal this to you, who you love, who hold ideas you don't love. Mm-hmm. And if you're going to love those, those family members and tolerate them, you're going to have to hold on to. Do not sacrifice your dislike for their position, but control. Don't let it affect the way you treat them. That is the true definition of tolerance, is of treating their, giving people the respect they deserve, even though you disagree about their positions. Mm-hmm. Jim, I hope you personally know how much I appreciate you and how much I appreciate your work, and I just love what you do, and I, I love your website, coldcasechristianity.com. It's just a thrill every time you come on the show, so thank you. Well, I just appreciate you can keep on calling me back. I hope you have a great, great Christmas holiday. I don't, I don't uh, do any travel uh, in December and January. I take those two months off just to hang out with Susie, and so I hope that you have the two, two, uh, two really relaxing months here on the holidays. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, J- brother. Jay Warner Wallace has been my guest, coldcasechristianity.com. Thanks so much for listening today. If you missed any of it, head over to myfaithradio.com. You can go check out the podcast. That wraps up our show. Have a great weekend. God bless. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.